I remember thinking about becoming a paediatric surgeon when I was training. And I, so I did it. I was an S, paediatric surgical SHA in Oxford. And I thought, you know what, I might be good enough to do this. Like this is like, I like paediatrics. I quite like the idea of doing that. And then to cut a, a sort of longer story short, I remember watching some amazing surgeons do some things. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be that good. I just knew in my heart, I wasn't going to be as good as they were at what they did. Like, and I was like, do you know, that's going to bug me my entire career if I keep on thinking I just don't have that hand-eye coordination or that, that level. Are you a doctor who's looking to get into big tech? Well, listen to today's episode featuring Dr. Umang Patel, who is the Chief Clinical Information Officer at Microsoft. So we talked about a range of things, but really focusing on his career journey from paediatrics to big tech at Microsoft via Babylon. Also, how he continues to manage his imposter syndrome. And most importantly, how doctors can position themselves to get into big tech. So don't miss out. And before you listen to this episode, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes. And also make sure that you are on our mailing list where we will drop some more really big, interesting tips and advice on your own career journey. So join us at medicfootprints.org forward slash join our mission. Anyway, on to this episode. So let's get real. Our value as doctors has significantly diminished over the last decade. So how can we turn that around by upskilling and creating rewarding and impactful careers on our own terms? Welcome to Disrupting Doctors' Careers. I'm your host, Dr. Abena Bubbers-Jones, and I'm on a mission to connect one million talented doctors with the best in diverse career opportunities. Welcome to Disrupting Doctors' Careers, and this week we are diving into the world of, as my daughter likes to say, big tech, and introducing uh, a really exciting guest today who I've known for some time, uh, Dr. Umang Patel, who is currently the Chief Clinical Information Officer at, I'm sure some of you have heard of this company, Microsoft. Um, Umang has also worked at other companies, including Aviva and Babylon. And where did he start his journey in medicine? From pediatrics. So we are going to explore how he made that transition and how he's developed his career in the wider world of tech. And most importantly, what that impact looks like. So welcome, Umang. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. And so one of the things you were talking and I was reflecting on before, because I've actually seen quite a few pediatricians who've done really well in tech. I mean, tomorrow we're talking um, with Satya, who's um, one of the clinical leaders at Accurex. But tell me, like, why do pediatricians, why, why do they do well in the world of entrepreneurialism, technology, health tech? Like, what skills do they have? that seems to transfer very well, like based on your own experience. Yeah, I, I thought this too. I keep on thinking we must set up like a network of paediatricians in health tech and, and, and see, because I think it's a great pool of people. Um, 
in fact, one of the first I met was Claire Lima, who, who was a paediatrician and went off and had other bits. And she was really inspirational and then sort of going off on this alternative career pathway. But to answer the question, I think probably three things. Firstly, uh, we're trained to communicate like more than anything else. And I think that's so important as a transferable skill. Um, if you're a surgeon, you've got lots of transferable skills, but probably your main one, like your hand-eye coordination, doesn't quite translate uh, as easily as into perhaps you know, having meetings or communicating, um, you know, why one thing is better than another. Um, that's not to say that surgeons can't do lots of things, but yeah, hopefully you know what I mean. Uh, the second one is in paediatrics, you don't really have a choice. You've got to solve the problem. It's You can't, you know, we're always trained. It's not like anybody, you're always working on behalf of someone else. You're always working collaboratively. Uh, you're working alongside parents. So sort of team um, working as part of a team and making sure that you get stuff done. Uh, again, is a really huge transferable skill. And then the third one is I think that we spend our entire time looking at people that are holding you know, pieces of tech or, or going to be using healthcare or, in, or use, utilizing health services in the future. And that leads you to think, like, we've got to do something different, right? Like, I often remember talking, this this now doesn't stand true because it's so ubiquitous. But way back when, I was like, every single patient that came in, I remember when I was an SHO, just mentally tracking that every single parent had a mobile phone. So, you know, 15 years ago, when people were like, you know, are we, uh, should we or shouldn't we be doing stuff on a mobile phone? If you happen to be doing adult medicine, you might say, well, people might get left behind or most of my patients might not. Whereas every single person that came through our doors, of course, by definition, was young, not just the patients, but also their their parents, typically. Um, and they all had mobile phones, which made me think, you know, this is definitely what we need to be leaning into. Mm, I, I think that's really interesting. Like, would you say that as a paediatrician, I mean, you are dealing with You've talked about parents in this example, but also children, varying ages, so different approaches at different ages, but also other stakeholders um, on a multidisciplinary level in a community and hospital setting. So would you, how would you say that that um, experience has translated to the practical work or the current work that you do in stakeholder management in a big tech environment? Yeah, I think this isn't limited to being a paediatrician. I think being being a doctor, being a clinician of all sorts, like that multidisciplinary team. So if I think back to Babylon, right, like you were you were sat as a small team next to people that were building the app, next to people that were trying to market it, next to people that were trying to convince people to pay money for it, um, uh, next to people that were running the operations. So being part of an MDT, like, is vital for success. Uh so I think some of the training that we've got, although not necessarily one for one, so, you know, your physio is not exactly the same as somebody that, you know, a coder, but being able to work with different people is really important. Communicating with those different people and adapting to you, adapting your style to suit them, I think is vital too. So similarly, um, and again, it's unfair if I keep on picking on surgeons, <laughs> but sort of like as a, as a pediatrician, you're often... It's a bit like being like I'm sure GPs do really well as well in med tech and so do geriatricians. There's something about being you're the coordinator more than the sort of prime event, if that makes sense, right? Like if you're the surgeon, the stuff needs to work around you because you're the thing or the person that's delivering the end result and people have to work up towards that. Whereas when you're the coordinator or the convener, it's a different skill set that you get to hone. And I think that's really important in when you're starting to think about building companies or doing stuff in new ways like you're often doing in healthcare. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think the communication skills is something that we, you know, you 
you're taught the lessons that we learned from com skill was ver- was varied considerably depending on the university you went to. It was taught um, at various levels. Um, what was I'm trying to think? What was most important for my experience when it came to communicating at various levels? I think it's what I learned on the job, but also as you said, like adapting to who you were speaking to, and as you said, you know that's relevant at you know, all, all levels, depending on whether you're a junior doctor or senior doctor. But then how do you translate that to industry? I found, particularly in industry, that you consciously have to be putting yourself into the other person's shoes in order to build that relationship to really understand what's important to them. And obviously, the difference between working in, say, a public health setting and in an industry setting is the change in what a hierarchy means, for example. So as you know, in public health, it's, it's very hierarchical. In industry or tech, sec- tech settings, not so much. Um, and you're not necessarily, even though you're in a leadership position, you're not necessarily seen as the top dog anymore. Like, How do you manage that in a way? Like, How do you, how do you adapt to that? Uh, yeah, it's a good Well, I, I think... Uh, a couple of ways like one is you do have to eat your own ego so there's something about you know if you are um a senior doctor there is a general like if you're running your ward round and you get to tell people to do various other bits and pieces like it's it's then very different when you come into something else and you all by definition you start behind most people right like you've done another career before you've arrived at this one so um there's a lot of sort of humility that you have to be able to um to display in order to be able to to get on with people and, and, and move things um through the teams i think the the other way that i always think about doing it is that it's when you we talk about this at microsoft a lot but we talk a lot about growth mindset as an example but one of the things that we've got a uh well one of the things we think about is like and i always find really fascinating is when i don't know something isn't it amazing to them think about it so i'll give you a story so when i was at, at babylon i remember being in charge of the mental health part of the app that we were thinking about building uh, so i was like okay what we must have if we're going to have this app that's dealing with mental health is we must have this sos button we like we need to have a new button on the home screen that you can click and it will then you know get you help immediately so I went to the developer. He's this. He was this guy with a ponytail. He was twenty years younger than me. You know, like just just coding away. Had his headphones on. He took them off. And I was like, look, you know, I need this SOS button. He looked at me, didn't say anything, put his headphones back on, and carried on going. And I was like, come on, like I don't mean to pull rank here. Like I tried again, again, just just you know, to my mind was being really rude. And I said, I don't want to be this guy, but I'm going to go up to our CTO and be like, I don't know what to do. Like, this is what I want. I need an SOS button. I've tried to talk to the team. Um, they're not, they're just not listening. And Gary, who's the CTO at the time, he was like, oh, no, you've just done the wrong thing, right? What you've done is you've gone to him with a solution. Uh... So what he's heard is that you want to put a, a you know, a seventh button on a six button screen. Uh... That's never going to work. What you needed to do was say, look, I've got this issue. How would you put it in? And, you know, I'd be in a pop-up or whatever else it might uh... be. And it's really... I always remember that situation of being like, I oh, know you're right, right? You know, and, and then I Gary went, Do you know what? He'll have way more data than you'll ever have about how if you did put that button on that screen, fewer people would use the entire product. So if our aim, as it was, was to try and make sure healthcare was available to as many people as possible, like if I'd made that decision and forced it through, we'd have been counter to what we were trying to achieve. Even though it turned, you know, you know, he's right, right? Like Dan had loads of data that could show if you mess up the UX, 
then you know people wouldn't engage with it. So it's really stark for me then to remember that you just don't know what you don't know. But that's sort of the joy of it, right? Like being able to to learn new skills and rub alongside people that have those uh, those different knowledge bases is really important and a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that's a great story and actually a lot of learnings from how I should communicate with our own developers and how how they react to certain things. They say, oh, I want something. They're like, uh, no. <laughs> um, but also, but that doesn't excuse him not even like acknowledging your request, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, I've, I've, like I've hyped it up. It's not, it's not fair. And I've used their real names. Um, yeah. Which again, I don't know if Dan, if you're listening, then I mean it with love. Although I saw, I saw Dan years, I saw Dan years later, and he'd left and he'd gone and created a game. And I said, oh, and he was talking. We're in the pub, and he was like, oh, you know, we've got some people in the game that get blown up and other bits. And you know, if you're developing the game, you can base them on different people. And I remember saying to Dan, I was like, Dan, am I one of the people that's blown up in your game? And he, he just didn't answer, so I took that as a yes. Awesome. Uh, brilliant. Well, moving on to one of our next questions. Um, you, you previously, I think one of the, the the big techs that you started off in was Babylon Health. Um, and then obviously at some point a while ago, you've, you moved on. Um, I mean, obviously, at time of recording, we all know what's going on in the news about Babylon Health. Um, and it's really to understand I mean, Babylon Health, a really exciting company. It's grown massively. It's it's made such an impact on a global level when it comes to offering primary care um, at the point of an app. So really bring it out to the millions, contracts with the NHS, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously that story hasn't ended as well as we would have hoped. But being someone that has been, I guess, Again, at senior level, working it in Babylon Health and having moved on from it, what are your thoughts or or advice, I should say, for doctors who at this point in time are thinking, hey, I'd love to join a health tech company, but I'm hugely, hugely concerned about what's going on with tech at the moment, the financial risks associated with joining tech, because we know that a lot of startups or most of 90% plus of startups do fail. Um, there have been a lot of redundancies going on in big tech at the moment. Um, how would you advise these doctors about how to manage that job risk when moving into health tech companies. But my first question is like, how how does it make you feel at this time, considering what's going on with Babylon Health? Uh, I, I, a bit sad, I, you know, I mean, in some ways, like I love Babylon, I loved everything we did there. You know, when I joined, there were 10 of us and we grew that company and I'm incredibly proud of mm-hmm. what we achieved. Um, you know we'll sort of take that to the grave like we we set out on a mission and we got really close to doing it the more I reflect on it it was always slightly inevitable that it was not going to succeed right like at every point in that journey we shouldn't have been able to do what we did and we were able to um and again like I say really proud of being able to move the needle and, and set things off in the UK especially it you know prior to the pandemic so that we were in a good place for at least telemedicine to be able to be supportive and work during the pandemic so really proud of that i remember talking to ali sally parser the founder when we were just a few of us in the company right so there were 10 of us in the company and we were having this conversation about what success looked like and and ali was very much like i'd prefer to flame out and like really go for it than just 
like be mediocre, right? Like it was always, if you're going to do it, do it. Like that's why we went to Rwanda. Like you just, no one else does that. Like, yeah, that doesn't go big sense. or go home, right? Was, yeah, exactly that. And, you know, I always remember that. And, you know, as a, so when I said it was inevitable, that was because that was the, that was the, the drive, right? Like it was never going to be big enough. But um, it was never going to, we always wanted to do yeah. more. Um, which after, when I left, I left because we IPO'd. And I remember thinking, you know, like, when does that happen? When do you get to a startup? that's gone from a small company into IPA, like, I, you know, I've got to, I've got to think about where to go to next. And it just so happened Microsoft called and um, they were like, look, you know, you, you've done something with a, a company that's got big. Do you want to go to a company that is big and see what it's like? And and uh, the, it was almost too compelling to not have a look. Um, so to watch over the last 18 months to see how much, uh, to see how what's not been at Microsoft and see how sort of Babylon has, has fallen off the cliff has been really sad. Um, but you know it is what it is, and 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 you know you know out of the ashes or out of the things that we've done, I was really pleased to see and sifted that there were a load of people that were ex Babylon that have got their own startups yeah, that are doing really well, and most of those are in yeah. healthcare. Um, I think that's a great legacy for the organisation. So uh, that's that's really my thoughts on Babylon. You know, like it's a shame, um, but I don't think that muddies the memories and, and the mm. achievements that, that we made. Um, so I'm just going to say, so what I can hear from your from your story is that, again, it's not always about the outcome and and, and the end point, because actually, the like, there has a there's a lot that's been learned from that process. There are a lot of opportunities that's been gained from that process. And people that have grown up within the company have also gone out to create their own companies, house at startups, looking at you as an example of someone who has then gone on to another big tech company and doing really amazing things. And so when it comes to translating that narrative to, if you take yourself back to Amang pediatrician early days stepping into health tech, how would you advise doctors who do have those concerns about what could happen in that process? Yeah, what, what like you absolutely should go into it assuming that it's going to go wrong, right? Like I, my problem, I went to one startup and it happened to be Babylon. And I remember I joined Babylon because Ali was the best entrepreneur that I'd come across. Like, again, by way of story, I um, I remember like thinking about becoming a pediatric surgeon um, when I was training. And I so I did it. I was an S, pediatric surgical SHJ in Oxford. And I thought, you know what, well, I might be good enough to do this. Like, this is like, I like pediatrics. I quite like the idea of doing that. Um, and then to cut a, st- a sort of longer story short, I remember watching some amazing surgeons do some things. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be that good. I just knew in my heart I wasn't going to be as good as they were at what they did. Like, And I was like, do you know, that's going to bug me my entire career if I keep on thinking I just don't have that hand-eye coordination or that that level. Um when I say, so, you know, spin forward when I, when I met Ali and uh, so we interacted a few times, so there were things that he did and the visions that he set and my entrepreneurial bug. I was like, he's just the best entrepreneur. I, I would love to, I would love to learn from him. I'd love to be able to sort of see how he does, does more. And um, that's exactly, you know, when I joined, that was what I joined for, not because I thought it was going to become a massive success or a, I joined because I wanted, I just wanted to see how he did that and just really see if I could, um, uh, learn from it had any skills that matched up to it so that was the point 
I never expected to last. I never expect, you know, firstly, you don't expect startups to survive very long. Secondarily, like they've got quite high turnover in startups, especially those founded by investment bankers. So you don't, so I, I would definitely, my counsel would be don't expect to be there for very long. Um, having said that, you know, you've got a great backup job, but going in with your, your eyes open is really important. Um, now, I never gave up practicing, so I still practice as a doctor uh, every Friday at Frimley Park. How have you managed to maintain that of interest, Amang? I mean, that's really impressive. And that, that's another thing that, pe- that doctors are generally concerned about, keeping up the clinical in a meaningful way. Yeah, again, super lucky. My wife said to me, she's like, you love being a doctor. Why, why would you give it up? And I said, well, you know, you have to. Who else can do, you know, not many people, you know, nobody does that. You've got to choose one or the other. And she said, just ask. And I said, okay, I'll ask. And I asked Doug, my, my boss at Aviva, which was my first job outside. I said, Doug, is it, can I do a day a week in the hospital? And Doug said to me, he had a very dry sense of humour. He was like, I don't care. He's like, whatever you, if you don't finish your work, I'll fire you. If you can do your work and get it done and spend a day in the hospital, then then fine, do it. And that was the beginning of me doing a day a week clinical. What, what do your colleagues think of that? Uh, well, I've done it now. I think about this, like I've done it for like 12 years. But at, at the beginning, longer. they were like, what? And it's lovely. Like, they describe it as my hobby. I get <laughs> so much energy from doing it. Um, I really, really enjoy it. And I notice if I haven't gone and done that, um, you know, I think it's continuity. I've now got people that were my SHOs that are now the consultants when I'm the middle grade, working as a staff grade on the ward. And it's funny, but it feels very much like a family tribe to go through. Um I do enjoy it. I think so being able to keep it up, I mean, I've been really lucky. Firmly have been super supportive. They've, they've you know, been flexible to allow me to, to work alongside them. I, I pick Friday for no good reason other than at Aviva, it was dressed down Friday. And I was like, man, I can't think of what to wear every Friday <laughs> if I'm going into the office. So I'll just go into the hospital and stuff. And, um, and uh, I always thought, you know, it's always the busiest day. So in some ways, it's quite nice. I know when people come in, they're like, oh, it's Friday. Thank heavens you're here. You know, typically the consultant on the week might be like, look, oh, we've had this problem patient. Any chance you can go and have a chat to them or have a think about them with fresh eyes? Um, stuff like that, which, again, gives me a lot of energy and, and, and enjoyment and hopefully adds value back to that. I mean, would you, so would it be safe to say that you actually enjoy paediatrics more now where you've got that balance between the big tech world and the clinical world? Like 100%, right? Like, I, I don't think I could, I, I generally don't think I could do it any other way. So I don't think I could do full-time, like, tech. I wouldn't have survived Babylon without having the energy on a Friday to be like, oh, this is why we're doing it. This is why you have to go through one of the ups and downs because it really is important. So, like, without the... And I notice if I don't go in on the Friday... And it's just quite early on, if I, for whatever reason, had a meeting or didn't do it, I'd, I'd, I'd lack the energy or the perspective. I think that was a real differentiator as well against being able to deal with the trials and tribulations of a startup and others. You're like, look, it doesn't matter if people are going crazy or doing this or, you know, there's high high anxiety around this or whatever else it might be. When you then go in on the Friday, you're like, but this is really important to do. So let's just get through it. Like, we'll find a way. Let's just knock it down. So I enjoy the I, the Friday helps me enjoy the rest of the week, and equally I think if I was a clinician the whole time I think I'd be a bit frustrated, right? Like I still have massive imposter syndrome. So in my head I still like somebody will call me out and be like, "Hang on a minute, you shouldn't really be here. Go back and just be a pediatrician," and then I'll have to go back and do all of that. Um, 
but in my head, if I was doing that, I think I'd be frustrated, right? I think I'd be like, well, is it, am I really being able to deliver the maximum impact that I think I can? Um, I think that's a big driver for a lot of clinicians that I talk to that are thinking about, well, what do I do? It's not like, oh, look, I want to get, I want to be rich or be on the cover of Times magazine. It's about how do I just make sure I can give the most that I can, given that I just really passionately care about trying to help people. Um, and I think having portfolio careers is a great way to do that. Brilliant. Um, just moving on to one of our last questions. What would you say are the underserved opportunities available or entry points available to doctors who are looking to get into big tech? And how would you advise that they best position themselves? So, I mean, increasingly so, big tech seems to be out of reach uh, for doctors. Like it's a fantasy of a vision that's like over there. And so, I mean, from your experience as far, what would you advise for doctors who are like, right, I, I really want to make an impact. I really want to try and get into big tech. How do I position myself? How do I get in? What's the lowest hanging fruit? A great question. I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure I can answer what's the lowest hanging fruit. I think, I think, and I, I've said this on a few podcasts, so, but, but I think it really stands true, is like one of the things we had at Babylon, as an example, for hiring was what is... Like, what are you going to do that's going to be 10 times the salary that you want? Right. So that was always Ali's question. It's like, what are you going to do that's going to deliver 10 times the value of what you want out of it? For me, that forces it into a couple of things. So where clinicians, you're giving something up in order to, to go on to another route. I think you do have to think about, well, you know, how much of a pay cut am I willing to take? If any, where am I trying to get to? And therefore framing it back in that, okay, well, what can I give back to it? It's really important. And you don't do that in the NHS, right? You don't think, oh, if I do this, because of course it's public sector and, and, and you know, the value is assumed as opposed to, to being measured through a, a P&L in the same way as a private sector. The other reason for doing that then allows you to go through the thought process of, well, how could I do that? And what am I really good at doing? Broadly, I think that fits into three categories. So you can either build something so, you know, I build a product, I support the build of a product in order for that thing to then be sold. I sell a thing. So I'm part of the team to where I sit now, like I sit in a, I'm going to try and communicate this in a way that people understand it so that then they want it. Um, or you run the operations of a thing, right? So you go, well, I'm, I, run in, I run the service, I therefore make it less likely to, you know, uh, have problems or be more efficient or, you know, have to pay fines or whatever else it may be. But trying to work through that process of do I, you know, my sort of build, sell or run and where's my skill set? Where's, where, where do I want to be really good? Where do I think I'll have the most impact? It's really important to do with pre-work before you can then start approaching people and be like, oh, I want to do this or do that. So you haven't done that, then then you don't know, right? And it becomes really difficult for people to be able to place you or say, okay, great. How can I test that as a, as a, um, as a theory? So if I take my own experience like it took me five years of thinking about it and I didn't do this deliberately but it took me about five years before I worked out that I like to communicate and explain things more than I liked say doing the governance behind something and therefore and like you had to although that may sound obvious it's how do you then how do you then um learn those skills say when I went to Aviva although my job was more around pathway design and others I went and joined the sales teams because I was really interested in it and I thought I quite enjoy these and that so there's something about once you've got a bit of an idea trying to get like this skill set off there off the back of it um 
that takes a lot of time and you can do that whilst you're working as a clinician versus thinking I've got to go and get that experience at a big tech where it mm. becomes really hard right how did you I mean how did you come to the conclusion like how did you work through that if you know what I mean I mean you said it took you five years did you have any help or was that uh, what was your process in actually getting to the point where you actually understood yourself better to then say hey why don't I make the most of of this part of myself which I know I really enjoy yeah, well, yeah, it's always easy when you look back. So at the time, you have no idea that you're going through that process. Uh, my process was I saw Helen Bevan do a couple of great talks about like, um, you know, like, what do you want to be when you, you know, like go and test at dinner parties that you want to be something different and see if you can kind of work out very much if you want to do clinical work or not. There's great advice about like, if you're if you're asking someone, it's the same as you do in medical training. If a patient comes in and is non-specific, it's really hard. If they come in and give you, a, if you come in and go, look, I want to do four days a week, and I need this, and I've got that, then that makes it easier for people to be able to say, okay, I get it. I can say yes or no, or more, or increasingly, what people do is they then say, well, this may not be for me, but I might know somebody that might have that requirement, so let me pass you on. So my process was saying yes to any meeting that I could get, and I got very good at an elevator pitch. And my elevator pitch was like, like I'm a man, I'm a pediatrician. I really want to be the chief executive of a hospital, but I need you know more skills in order to be able to do that effectively. And people were like, okay, okay, that's interesting. What skills do you need? Well, I you know I need to have more. I need to learn how to use Excel. I need to know how money flows through systems because I don't know that. They're like, oh, okay, great. That then leads you to, that's how I ended up with the Aviva job, right? Somebody said, well, have you thought about insurance? I know this person. Um, which then led me to emailing Doug, not about a job, because they posted a job, not, and I had massive imposter syndrome, so in my head I could never have done it. But I emailed and said, look, I don't, I really, I don't have an MBA, I don't have any skills, I don't have any of this stuff, but um, maybe I will have in the future. Can I have a chat to you about... Um, just what I might need in order to get this job later and he said come and have a chat and during that conversation it turned out that I had built some of those skills and I remember being able to say oh actually I've just seen something that I've done something relevant to it um because I'd been a, a lecturer at the King's Fund that I'd gone to so I was like oh and he was like oh yeah so you do know quite a lot of this stuff why don't you uh, why don't you apply mm. so he helped you to understand that some of your experience that you've gained along that journey actually is something that they would see is a value because I know that a lot of doctors actually have that same challenge where they're like I haven't done an MBA or I haven't done this qualification therefore I can't possibly be of any value to anyone at this stage and it's like hold on a second I mean I was speaking to a medical student at a, a VC event recently and he, he was talking about being from a target university which I didn't really know what that was but from what I understand it's like a widening access to university type thing anyway he was like oh you know aim for a target university i don't know how to get into industry i've got no experience and i said hey you know wait hold on a second you just recently told me that you've run several businesses when you were younger. <laughs> do you not think that might be relevant um and he was like oh yeah but you know but a lot of a lot of doctors have the, exactly that same problem like not thinking outside of what they've done in, in the scope of being a clinician and everything else, all the extracurricular stuff that they've done, all the stuff that we also had to articulate to get into medical school, right? I mean, you know, the academic isn't isn't everything. It's also everything else that shapes you. Uh, my final question, though, is um, we haven't we kind of touched upon it. Is about the mindset. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about 
how your mindset has grown, evolved, changed from, again, being a clinician. Well, the mindset you acquire as a clinician compared to the mindset you need as a CCIO of a big tech company. Like what are the core differences that you've noticed and seen, um, especially as you progress in your career? Yeah, great question. I, I think um, I don't know if they're that different. I mean, it does feel like you know you evolve. I, I, having a, a real desire to do the right thing. I mean, it's lucky I, I you know I cover Europe, but but mainly the NHS. There's something about staying in healthcare. So a, a key question I think people have to ask themselves is, well, if I am going to leave medicine to go into, do I am I going to limit it to technology or? service or you know companies that work in healthcare right like is it or am I really I, I don't mind what I do I just want to do something entirely different I mean do I, do I want to go and try and use my brain power to help with sustainability uh, so like so there's lots you can do that that might do that or are you really wedded to, to healthcare and, and and so on and so forth so again that's a part to think through so lucky that I've been able to keep that which has meant my mindset probably hasn't had to change too much and there's this great when I was interviewing for Microsoft I remember they were they were like, oh, can you like just take us through like examples of your growth mindset, which I hadn't really thought through before. And I, I just didn't think I said, well, I, you know, I really wanted to know why is it that we couldn't, I didn't know how money worked in the system. So I went to work for an insurance company that I didn't understand why we couldn't use more technology. So I went to work for a startup. And now I don't understand why Microsoft needs a doctor. So I'm like, <laughs> like, you just said, like, you know, it was just, it's like, just so really want curiosity. To right because yeah, that was the main thing because it's interesting because we held our doctors in medtech roundtable last week right so i think we had seven panelists the most we've ever had right for a roundtable and one of the key really key points that came out of it because at the moment linkedin and everyone who's anyone in, in industry and startup world is talking about skills first hiring forget the degrees you want to know the skills and how that transfers but actually uh you had the anushka pacheva from wellix you had um charlotte lee sinclair commercial director at limbic both saying actually we don't hire for skills because that has also led to some really bad hires we hire now for curiosity so we want someone who is genuinely motivated interested um committed to our values and what we're doing because we know that that translates to really great outcomes productivity and growth we talked about growth mindset um, and so what you've described is really interesting because you were just genuinely really keen and interested <laughs> right yeah I was like I, I didn't think I'd get the job I was like I just want to know why like it was and I think that's like why I, th- I think that's true of most clinicians right you're just trying to and then I think we get lost in our heads a bit so to answer your question about you know people are well I don't have the skills for this do I need to do an MBA do I need a qualification and and like I, you know in my experience you don't but you do you do need to um you know have that ability to get your energy from a place that will keep you going so my point about the five years was not so much that it, I actually realised it took five years, but it, I didn't feel like that. It was just I knew I wanted to do something different and I wanted to find out these things and you, you have to keep on going. And I remember vividly being at the King's Fund, listening to the lecture that I talked about and sitting in the far left corner, hoping that nobody would talk to me. because I was so intimidated by all of these people that I thought were way more senior than me and um you know, and I, but I had to. I remember forcing myself to go to it because I wanted to listen to the topic, even though I didn't know anyone else there and the other bits. And clearly, you get to brush over the bits and present it as a great story. But like I remember thinking, and 
And I met actually uh, Rahul Chadari, who's another paediatrician that's doing some great stuff in um, Wolf in the Centre in the N- in NHS uh, England. And I remember him saying to me, oh, I remember seeing you at one of those lectures and having us having a really brief chat. So however many years later, it's lovely to have thought like, you know, some of that stuff connected. Um, so it's worth doing uh, when you can. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Umang, for sharing your experiences, your journeys. And, you know, the imposter syndrome came out quite a lot, I noticed, in this conversation. Um, it's, it's interesting because I, I, every single person I talk to, including myself, it's, it's not something that goes away. Yes, the confidence does build. But, you know, even some of the most, okay, inverted commas, senior, most senior people I've seen, they still get it. We still have imposter syndrome. Like, how much do I really know? I don't know why everyone thinks I do know it. But anyway, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure you'll continue to do amazing things. And obviously, if anyone wants to find out more about Umang, he's also available on LinkedIn. Um, Any final words? No, great. Please do come and say hello to me via LinkedIn. Like, I'm always trying to get more LinkedIn followers. And uh, (laughs) like, it's been great chatting. And I, I look forward to speaking again soon. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Umang. Take care. Thanks.